Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Yunmi Park. She escaped from North Korea only to be sold into human trafficking in China. Now she shares her story while working as a human rights activist. Welcome, Yunmi. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We are recent acquaintances. We actually just met Ted through mutual friends at a dinner. You know, when you came in, you were the most vivacious, petite, sparkly, very fashionable young woman. I had no idea who you were or your story. Subsequently, a few friends filled me in, and then I read your book. I read In Order to Live. Obviously, you can explain it better than I can, but it's a book about your escape from North Korea and the years that it took going through China and through Mongolia and through South Korea to finally ending up in the U.S. And it's such a story of triumph and heroism and just incredibly inspiring. And then you're just this petite, delicate, kind of vivacious, bubbly young woman. It was absolutely unfathomable to read what you went through. And and I just, I first of all, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story because I think so many of us hear about the regime in North Korea, but we don't hear much about the people and about their lives and how they think. And so I think that was really, really important to share with the world. Uh, thank you for, I mean, being encouraged. Uh, I think there are many survivors from North Korea that exist and living in the world, but uh, I think the world is not, a lot of times, it really doesn't, you know, invest to share this survivor story. So I really appreciate that your effort to get to know what is going to the, going on to the people of North Korea, not just in the, you know, politics, with the, the talks or, you know, the summit, whatever is going on in political level. I think you did such an incredible job of humanizing the people and telling your story, the bad, but also the the moments that you cherish in your childhood. And you grew up near the Chinese border. Is that right? Yeah. So I was born in 1993, and that's right after when Soviet Union collapsed. And I was born in this town called the Hesan, which is right across from China, and we had this one river that was flooding between China and North Korea that was dividing us. And so luckily, because I was in that region and that geographically so close to China, I think that gave me also the advantage of, you know, escaping later in life. I read that you escaped in the middle of the night across a frozen but not completely frozen river at the age of 13. Yeah. And you thought that you were paying bribes to ensure a safe crossing, and then you get to the other side and you get to China, a momentary relief to escape North Korea, but then you find yourself in a completely horrific situation. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what was going through your mind? Yeah, so, you know, I was born in North Korea, and we do not have internet access, you know, we cannot, if we access the outside information, that is only the, through the illegal way, the government punishes people severely when they uh, even read the Bible or watch foreign information. By 
some of them actually can be even probably executed for doing that. So naturally, living in North Korea, I did not know much about the world. But in my most like, desperate point was when I was so hungry. And I thought if I stayed in North Korea, I was going to die from the starvation. And I saw China right across the river and seeing the lights from China and night, the electricity, if you see North Korea from the satellite, it's literally the darkest place on Earth. We do not have 24 hours electricity. And that made me to want to go to China to look for food. And I crossed the frozen river with my mother uh, at the age of 13. And as soon as we got into China territory, that um, my mother was raped. And we heard that we had to be sold as sexual slaves. And, and that was, I think, it was, uh, it was quite a shock that I had no idea uh, outside of North Korea was actually going to be worse than being in North Korea in some ways. And you left shortly after your sister left, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I initially wanted to escape with my sister, but then I got this really bad stomach ache, and my parents took me to the hospital. And in North Korea, we don't have these like X-ray machines and see what is going on in your body. Literally, the doctor just walked my belly and said, I might have the appendicitis. So they need to operate on me right away. And they did operate on me that afternoon without painkiller. And once they opened my stomach, you know, I didn't have appendicitis. It was like really severe malnutrition and infection. So because of my hospitalization, I couldn't go with my sister. So she escaped at the age of 16 with her friends first. And she left the memo for me and who should I go find to go to China and find her. So, you know, I just was very naive back then. I just thought if I go to this note, a person that she told me about, and she told me, you know, if I go to China, I was going to meet up with my sister again. And yeah, that was also another motivation for me to go to China. Wow. I I just am recalling, you know, reading this part of your book and, and talking about finding yourself in China not being able to find your sister, seeing your mother raped, tr- trying to protect you, and then realizing that the way that things were going to work, you were going to be sold into into marriage or into prostitution. And yeah. you're 13. You've just escaped North Korea, which is just an incredible feat. And you're recovering from surgery. You're malnourished. Where do you think your bravery and strength came from and I guess what was going through your mind at that time? Oh <laughs> what was it going through my mind? I guess I mean you definitely feel the terror. It's uh it's very scary at that age to, you know, be raped and and being also caught that always there's a danger of being caught by Chinese authority and being sent back to North Korea. So 
one of the things that I constantly heard from these uh, brokers, the human traffickers, was that I can kill you right now, right here. And, you know, they know I cannot go to police. There's no one going to call them accountable. So my life was even, like, less valuable than a dog. A puppy was on the street. So, but the... I mean, there were times I definitely wanted to even try to kill myself. And there were times I fought for my life. I think it is that I did have a very loving parent that who taught me how to, taught me that life is a gift. It's uh, something for you to appreciate and cherish and fight for it until you die. But the other thing is, so, so it's like human nature that the will to survive, the will to live, it is the biggest force in life. In the moment of death, you have this strength that you never knew you had or that human can have. So I think when you go through something so severe that, you know, you don't know where those like, power comes from. You just do it because I think that's the nature. I was thinking about that throughout the course of your book and you faced so many close calls with death, and certainly you were faced with kind of the utmost of what any human has gone through. And And I'm sure, you know, having spent time now in North Korea, in China, in South Korea, and in the U.S., traveling around the world, advocating for human rights, you've had such a different experience, and you've had so many encounters where you, you almost died or were killed. And, and how does that change your relationship or perspective on life and how you decide to live? I mean, I think it's the, 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 this is, I, it's really the recently I've been married and had a, had a baby and that kind of brought me a new realization. So in the past, if somebody asked me, oh, how are you so normal? <laughs> People were looking at me like, I don't get it. Like, you look so normal to me, you know. How is that possible? Do you do therapy? And I would tell them back then, I was like, are you kidding me, you know? It's like, what is the point of surviving through all of that? And or just being miserable about you went through all of that. <laughs> and like, of course, I don't need therapy in the past. But I do now realize more this experience of rape and all of this do stay with you. And your job is, is not erase them. You know, so many moments in my life, I wish that I, if there was a way for me to erase those memories. But you, you really can't, and that's not the solution. So I think lately that I realized more is that, you know, it's really more question of, like, why me? Why did I survive? Why so many of us didn't make it? But why me? It's not because I'm religious or anything, but, you know, when you go through something that makes no sense, something is so unreal that I think it's human nature to make sense out of it. And I think now my... My, I think maybe the way of comforting myself or way of me dealing with my 
you know, a guilt, of survivor's guilt is that the reason why I survived is that because, you know, as a witness, it's a my responsibility to end this tragedy that humanity is facing. So I think, yeah, it's a journey even as a survivor. It's often people think, oh, if you're in this danger, that's bad. But if you're out of danger, that's good. It, this, this continues when you go through something that traumatic. Uh, it stays with you and you have to keep working through it. And yeah, make something positive out of the whole experience. It reminds me of uh, Viktor Frankl's novel, Man's Search for Meaning, A Holocaust Survivor. I'm not sure if you ever read that. I definitely read it. Yeah, I did. It but, was a... Uh, yeah. But it seems like humans need to understand why we have yeah. these experiences and to try to make sense of life and tragedy and pain. Yeah. And it's so incredible that after going through that, finding this purpose that you, at such a young age, as a teenager, that you needed to shine a light on the inequalities in the world and human rights violations and to take that on your shoulders. I want to come back for a second to your time in China. I think you you said that you had to live with your trafficker for two years before you made it to to South Korea. And I kind of want to ask you a little bit about what time was like in China. I know you lived in a few different places, and you were also Mm -hmm. there at the time that China was preparing for the Beijing 2008 Summer Games. You saw a lot of the dark side that we didn't see on TV. We just saw the sparkly lights and the new stadiums. And I'm very curious to hear what that experience was like for you. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, obviously, North Korea, I was in a very impoverished, you know, class and area, especially after my father was sentenced in the prison camp. In North Korea, you know, if they, they punish the families of a member if they commit a crime. So the him being a criminal made me, like, we call it, made my blood tainted. My blood was not revolutionary color anymore. So I didn't really have, you know, knew what was going on in the world or what even Olympic was really. Not necessarily, I didn't, did not know what much about it, but as soon as I was in, in China, there, I heard from the traffickers, the, the surveillance and cracking down on this most vulnerable people like us, the factors in China was getting severe. So what China did to clean up this mess and to hide this crime was, uh, where was it like in America when there were slaves? If you, there were like slave hunters, if you catch these slaves, you can get prized for it. That's what China did and what they do still, that if Chinese ordinary citizens catch defectors and they report on the uh, police, they get prize for it. They get money for it. So everyone was eager to catch us for the money. And China completely goes against the you know, Geneva Convention and all these international laws. We are not immigrate, like, you know, economic migrants. We are political refugees. The fact that you escape from North Korea, that means you defy the regime. It's a very political act. So China, under no 
like international law, they can't send us back, but they do. So in order to, you know, to do it quickly, they were paying people to catch us and they would do every way to just catch us and send us back North Korea. And I remember my father passed away in 2008 in February. Uh, that was, I think, few months before the Olympic game. And the, if you see the streets and the TV, it's a big celebration. It's a big moment for China to have this big festival in their country. But as a North Korean defector, uh, my father died and I couldn't even afford to cry. Crying was even a, a luxury act uh, for us, like living, you know, as less valuable than animals in China. I had to be quiet no matter what. And when everybody was sleeping, I uh, buried his ashes in the mountain in the middle of like night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. time. And, and yeah, and that's when I really thought, what have I done in this world? Only crime that I committed was being born in North Korea. That's all we did and that's all I did. And because of the crime, being born in North Korea, my father just died in China without his funeral. I really thought like dogs, you know, even dog dies, you can talk to your neighbors that your dog dies. But this is my father, a human died. And you can't even make a, a noise about it. Wow, I can't imagine after everything you went through in North Korea and seeing your family fall from grace. Originally, you said your father had a good job. Him falling from grace, including economic sanctions against North Korea, just made it a much more difficult place to live than you were always hungry, eating grasshoppers and dragonflies. And then you finally escape and you get to China and, and yet you're not really free. You have to hide. You're not a free person. You've been sold. You're with your mother, but you your mother gets sold to someone else and you still can't find your sister. And so how many years were you in China before you were able to escape that situation? It was, I think, total uh, three years, almost two years. And during that time, I was being separated from my mom and finding her back and being separated again and finding her back. Eventually, we uh, walked across the Gobi Desert from Mongolia, from China to Mongolia. For people that aren't familiar with the Gobi Desert, how long was that? What were the conditions like? Yeah, so we, so we, we met uh, these missionaries from China they were South Koreans, and they told us if we believe in God, they were going to help us. And in North Korea, we do not have a freedom of religion. We do not have any other religion. The only religion that we have is Kim, Kim Deer leaders. So I, I was so confused. What is God? What is Jesus? What is Bible? But, you know, as someone so brainwashed in North Korea, it just made perfect sense that, you know, God loved us, gave us their son, their Jesus' body died, but his spirit lives forever. 
and basically North Korea copied the Bible and indoctrinated us. So we had to become the believers, and they told us a way to go to Mongolia. They didn't even like take us there, but they told us how to go there, which was involving uh, taking many many days of taking buses and train and the car ride to go to Inner Mongolia. So Mongolia, China has this, uh, one of the region called Inner Mongolia region. It's China, but it has a border with with Mongolia. So once we arrived in the Inner Mongolia area, uh, this uh, ministers in the church gave us one um, one compass, and they told us if you go towards west and north direction. And if you cross 18 wire fences, because the border area, you're going to have wire fences. And that will be Mongolia. And if you find the Mongolian soldier in the middle of desert, tell them that you're North Korean defectors and want to go to South Korea. It sounds so easy, but it was 2009. And I think it was uh, end of February and beginning of March. It goes like a minus 40 degrees at night in the desert. It has nothing to block the wind. We don't have, you know, gloves or hiking gears or like proper shoes. Uh, you know, we don't have like scarves or like hide anything. We just have like few, you know, clothes that wasn't even that good. And we had, uh, I think, eight people in our team total and we had one baby with us. And in in our journey with taking this train on course, we had to drug this baby, give him the sleeping pills, so he would not cry, would not make a, get the attention from the police and other people. Once we got in the Inner Mongolia, that's when we start walking. And from walking from Inner Mongolia to to Mongolia, I think that was took one night. But it was like uh, minus 40 degrees, so it, it was extremely dangerous to be in there even for like even for hour. You can just die from the cold or get shot by the Chinese soldiers standing there with the guns, with the machine guns. They would shoot anyone who was crossing the border illegally. And luckily we did not get caught by the soldiers and didn't make it to Mongolia crossing all these wire fences. So I think we were just lucky. <laughs> wow. Uh, it was just a lot of just randomness. How you make it is, you know, it's not like other people didn't try harder. It, we were just really lucky that we didn't get caught, we didn't die from the court, we didn't get lost in the middle of the desert. There, uh, we met other teams in in South Korea, they were like in desert for days and after days and couldn't find the water. And some of them just shot by the like soldiers. And yeah, or like some of them are being eaten by the animals in the deep desert. Wow. So we don't know how many of them died in the desert who didn't make it. Surviving in North Korea, surviving your escape from North Korea surviving three years of trafficking and three years, yeah. in China, and then mm-hmm. you have days wa- escaping and hiding and fearing for your life and 
getting across Mongolia, across the Gobi Desert, and you finally make it to South Korea. And I think for people around the world that maybe don't understand the dynamics between North and South Koreans, I found it very interesting that when you got to South Korea, first it was a relief, but then you you really felt like a second-class citizen and you felt alienated and you had such a difficult time fitting in. And it, can you walk me through what it was like the moment you arrived and, and how you began to get settled into your, your new life in South Korea? Yeah, so, you know, I was 15 years old by then when I was arriving in South Korea and I thought, you know, this is it. This is the end of my hardship and I'm being realized as a normal person. I think the one common theme among North Korean defectors that we have is all we want in this world is being normal. So that we can't be without loved ones without being separated. We we don't get cared for, you know, watching a movie. We just wanna be normal what what people have here, that's all we want in this world. It's not our dream is becoming a billionaire or becoming a celebrity. But that is not granted as a notion defector in South Korea because of this sickening discrimination by people. So I don't know if you paid attention to news lately about Korea is that there a mom and I think her five year old son starved to death in the middle of Seoul in 2019. She literally starved to death in Seoul and because she, of the lack of, yeah. She was a North Korean um, defector. Defector, wow. She was a North Korean, yeah. That's how cold, how, how the system in South Korea systemic, systemically discriminates us right now, especially the current government. And the people are are systemically also discriminating us in daily conversation, in job or search opportunities, in every situation. So as soon as I got there, I, of course I don't know what you know what American is. I never drank coffee in my life. I don't know how to take the survey. I don't know how, what is bank is. I remember when our detective told us that, and the, our teachers in this. When we arrived in South Korea, there is a center called Hanawon. It's like re-education center. They teach us about the free world and how to live in South Korea. And they say, you know, here we don't carry cashes. We put money in the bank account and using the ATM card. And, you know, everything is like, what is credit card? What is debit card? You know, what is bank account? And I thought when I was using my ATM card, I literally thought someone was giving me money out of the machine inside. <laughs> That's like how ancient we are about this modern modernity. But that's not the really big struggle. The biggest struggle is the uh, is people's discrimination that if I tell my friends as a 15 years old, they say like, are you a spy? Why are you here? You know, it just, um, and eventually I had to lie everyone that I was a South Korean. And I had to fix my accent. But the people like my mother, who's a lot older, 
they cannot really change their accent no matter what they do. So my mom stay in South Korea right now. I get discriminated every single day whenever she meets people. And she, whenever she even get in the taxi or buying a grocery in the grocery store, they ask, where are you from? You know, because they can tell my mom's accent. And so it's a, it's an ongoing for battle for the factors even after all of that. And to this day, they're, they have defected stabbed to death in the middle of Seoul in 2009, when South Koreans are having a war on diet. Wow. After going through so much to still not be met with open arms and understanding, but with discrimination, I just... And, and all this time, you're, you're still only 15, and you've gone through lifetimes yeah. of this. I want to segue to still when you're in South Korea, but you still haven't found your sister. It's been years. Yeah. How did you end up finding your sister? Was she already in, in South Korea, or how, how did you find her? So seven years later, after we were separated, when I was 20 years old, and I saw her last time was when I was 13. When I was 20 years old, uh, we got a call from South Korea's national intelligence said that, you know, they think they found my sister. And so, as I said, when we enter South Korea, the first thing they do is put us in a two months of time, the duration of the time, the solitude in this confined area and in- investigate that if we are spy or not. So, you know, obviously you have to give them your names of relatives, your friends, your teacher. You have to draw a map of your neighborhood. You have to write off that you did it in the school. And so, like, if you're not North Korean, you're not going to know any of these details. So you have to give all of this information. And after two months of interrogation, they say, oh, you're not, but you can't get into South Korean society. So from that two-month period, my mom and my mom separately gave the information to them, and they matched, and turns out my sister's name came up later. So my sister also did the same interrogation and told them who who was her mom, like, parents were, and where she lived, her address, her friend's name, everything, they all matched. So they said, your sister is here in South Korea. And so how- we went to... How many years was that later? That was seven years later. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That must have been an incredible like, moment. Yeah, I mean, like, 20 and 27 is not that big difference, but 13 and 20 was a big difference. I was a teenager, and I was adult. So, but she didn't grow even one centimeter after that. She was they're the same, she was tiny, and she, she aged. She gone through so much in China that she aged at the young age. And, yeah, and then, you know, after all of that, it's not like you're saying, oh, everything's great, we are together, but because you went through so much in life, it wasn't easy, you know, to be us coming to the you know, same place and being open to one another. 
my mother and I were fine because we were separated for a short amount of time and we came back together. But with her and us, there's after seven years. So that took also many years of hard working. And now she's very open and she's very vulnerable in front of us and tells us everything. But she would not tell us what happened to her for a while. And she was very upset. Wow. You know, I have a close relationship with my sister and I, I can't imagine separation and such repeated trauma over that time. And then, you know, seven years later, you're you're different people because of not only yeah. how much you've aged at, at, over those years, but the experiences. You You leave South Korea and you make it to the United States. You're doing so many incredible things here and and you've had the chance to compare society in South Korea, in North Korea, in the U.S. Something that I thought was very interesting that you said was that living here, you find that real-life connection is often lacking, uh, that you feel disconnected. And do you think it's because of technology, or do you think it's something about about Western culture? I mean, I... So... <laughs> If I live longer enough, maybe I know exactly. I think maybe things are never that simple. Maybe it's not only solely technology that made us disconnected, even though we are connected than ever before. But, you know, even with my friends, a lot of times, I still have issues in my family. Oh, they say, oh, I had a long day work, so I'm coming on, I'm going to just look at my phone. Don't bother me. Don't touch me. Don't talk to me. And for them to be being connected is like looking at their screen. And, and you know, if I call people out of nowhere, they're like, why are you calling me? Like, they get really, like, confused and sometimes upset that I call them instead of texting first. <laughs> then I was like, that's interesting. And... And in North Korea, even though we do not have this modern technology to connect us, and I cannot make a friend in Africa, but we have this intimate connection between humans that I can never describe to people here. It's, you know, it's something that I really miss right now. Uh, but also, I also understand that the West had its culture of individualism and encouraging this individualistic behavior. So in North Korea, what we lacked was individualism. That when we say things like, oh, you know, here we say, oh, I like pizza, I like tacos, I like this color, I like trouble. We, we do not have any fear when we say, I like this. But in North Korea, I never start his sentence by saying, I, it had to be. Everything we say is we. Like, we love kimchi. We love red color. We love our country, you know? Interesting. So, that I do... But here is really all about I, <laughs> me. And I think that's maybe also, you know, accompanied by this technology. That's why maybe we are more focusing on ourselves and not being able to connect with others. That makes complete sense. It certainly resonates with me, and I know many other people that are listening. 
when you said, you know, it's just something that we don't even think about because we live in such a celebrity culture uh, where we, we idolize actors and athletes and YouTube stars that you were saying our we just wanted a normal life. We just wanted to not be hungry and watch a movie and be a family. No one wanted to be famous. No one wanted to be a billionaire. Yeah. And and it's it's such a novel, refreshing way to look at like you know what actually matters in life. And I think a lot of people in the West, as you've said, they seem to have everything and yet they're not happy or satisfied. And and have you fallen into a little bit of a trap of getting accustomed to living in the U.S. and part of this keeping up with the Jones type of there's always like the next iPhone or the next something yeah. that we're always desiring. I think that's really a good question is that I think, you know, all I wanted was like eating a bottle of rice. That's what I risked my life for when I crossed that frozen river from North Korea. And that, you know, we get separated from our loved ones so much in North Korea. I see my uncle dying, my, my grandma dying from starvation and the moms being sold in China as wives and childhood are being left in North Korea and dying on the street. Everyone's being separated in North Korea. So, you know, when I was escaping there, that's all I wanted, right? Living normal life. And now it's like, I do think I'm being shaped by this culture of wanting more and more. It's never enough. Is that, you know, people constantly asking me, like, yeah, so you wrote a book now. Oh, yeah, you're graduating from Columbia. So what, what's next? Tell me what's next. Why are you working? What are you going to do? And they're constantly like, so what is next? And if I don't do something great or what I do, it's almost like I disappoint them. And it almost seems like I have to have some like, grand plans in my life. And all I wanted was actually being happy and being grateful. And then I tell them, like, I don't know what I'm going to do after Columbia. And they just look so confused. <laughs> that pressures me, honestly. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm graduating from school now. What? I got to do something now. It's people just constantly asking what I'm going to do next, you know. We'll take your time. And there's there's plenty of time to figure out the next steps. Exactly. I think it just, uh, yeah, it's. It just, I think sometimes enough is enough. Like, I I became free. I think I definitely needed my freedom. So I did fight for it. But I just, yeah, the culture of, like, wanting more does scare me. And I hope it doesn't get into me more. Because, you know, when you want more, you're just really not prepared and satisfied. It's, so it's just like, almost for me, it's like better, you know? How much do I want to let go of myself to, in order to be adapted, accustomed to this culture? And how much do I want to also accept from this modernity, this culture, the new, new culture I'm facing? And so today you're a human rights advocate and you're spreading awareness of living conditions and exposing the horrible state of life in North Korea. And are there any other parts of the world that you've focused on besides North Korea? Or, and then the one other thing is, is it, 
At such a young age, you're watched by the Pyongyang government. You've been called out as a human rights propaganda puppet. And and how does it feel to know that you have such a powerful voice and that the country that you escape from is watching you? That must be terrifying. It did terrify me in the beginning a lot. It's, uh, you know, North Korea is not joking. <laughs> I mean, he, he made his uncle become ashes by killing him on the machine gun. And he, you know, killed his half-brother, not even his own territory, but at Malaysia airport, when the international world was watching. So if this regime wants to kill me, they're going to kill me, no matter what I do. And it is a different like, kind of fear. It's not like having a stalker around, almost evil, uh, this dictatorship is approaching me and targeting me. But what scares me most and what still shocks me the most is the disappearance of every every family member that involves me in North Korea. As I spoke out, all of my relatives have disappeared in North Korea. I do not know if they've been executed. I don't know if they've been sent to prison camps. And, you know, my voice that I have right now did come with enormous price. You know, with dozens of my relatives' life. And I'm still not free because I'm speaking here. The regime tries in every way possible to silence me. They harass me, you know, use the hackers to comment and spread the false rumors about me and do the cyber attack on me and in every possible way to describe me, but, you know, like, I mean, I could have been killed so easily in the past, and also life is a really risky thing. I can get hit by a car anytime. So now I just try to, you know, think, if the life that I have is, like, almost, like, you know, plus a given life for me that, that, you know, this life grants me to live further. So... If they're going to really kill me, it's fine. <laughs> but I just feel really terrible about um, my relatives who pay the price for it without their desire. And that's how evil this regime is. Because of the only crime they committed is that they were related to me, which wasn't their control. But the regime punished these innocent people. Say. Well, you're certainly, your voice is so very much needed and a huge inspiration speaking for those who can't speak. I think that's part of what you focus your degree on at Columbia, which is uh, where I did my undergrad. And I was so excited to learn that you were at Columbia. I'm so happy for you to have that that experience because for me, it was the first time that I got to think about something outside of skating and sports and performance and winning and expectations. You did say in North Korea that you didn't have the luxury to think of ideology, to have hobbies, to dream. It's really just about surviving. And now that you do have that luxury, what do you find yourself thinking about? I mean, it's really, it's constant like everything, right? It's just, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, I remember last semester, the last semester I pushed until my graduation was the 
class that I had to was like the music and art class. If you went to Columbia, you know the you know the core curriculum, so you need to take the music and art. And in the past, I was like, that's completely like a waste of your time, you know? What a luxury, like, and I really learned so much from that two classes about what it means to be a human. So I think, you know, my perspective on things are definitely still changing and evolving. And, and you know, the things that I believe is true, maybe will be not. And I, I love having this freedom to change my thoughts and grow and keep questioning and asking questions because asking questions was never allowed when where I come from and we do not even have a term for critical thinking in North Korea but I can do so much of that at Columbia I'm a sick of it in the critical thinking <laughs> part yeah you're like enough already <laughs> I, I know it's like yeah. enough of critical thinking but yeah, I just love this ride of, you know, finding the truth every single day. Oh, that just echoes a lot of my experience as well. And I had such an incredible experience there. I have two last questions for you. And this interview has been just incredible so far for me. And just getting to hear your story and how you think about life and your purpose in the world. But I, I want to ask you on the theme of purpose and identity is to really understand where your sense of identity comes from today and, you know, must, people must see you as a defector and a North Korean and human rights advocate, but sometimes who we think we are and how we see ourselves in the world is different than the expectations other people place on us. And I'm kind of curious if, if there's kind of two Yunmi's, if there's one that just wants to be a girl and live life and experience the world and this other one that has such a burden of responsibility because of the life experiences you had and the platform you have available and you speak at the UN and you speak around the world, how do you see your identity? Yeah, so I think my identity now is definitely coming from something uh, that I want to fight for, which is bigger than myself, and that is for the people of North Korea. Uh, I do really want to you know, in any way contribute my life to free my people and, you know, let them see how beautiful life can be in this world. That life never has been that desperate and that sad. That's a beautiful answer. Uh, thank you. And the, and the last question I wanted to ask you is, what is your Olympic moment? It's one question I ask all the guests that come on my podcast and and I even ask the athletes, but it's not allowed to be the Olympics. So it could really be just some really life-defining moment that 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 changed you, that you work towards, and it, it can be anything. Yeah, I think uh, it's really sad because I have so many Olympic moments, but I think there's one thing that I can that changed my life is that, you know, having a son with American bastards. <laughs> it, this is why I tell people, look what freedom can do, what uh, liberty can do to people. Uh, Americans, you know, I could never call Americans like this. When I was in North Korea, I had to call them American bastards. 
I had to believe that Americans were monsters and an enemy that I had to fight until the you know last drop of blood that was left in my body. And now, you know, I had a son in his certificate saying that his mom is North Korean and father is American, and he's American himself. And I, I cannot think of what can be a better than saving life in this world. And I, I hope, yeah, I hope I can make my son's world a better place for him. Then he is adored. So I think at the end of all my journey, what I got was my son. And he's my hope. So I hope that everyone, you know, gets this, uh, this prize in their life. Like I, I was rewarded by his life. That's such a beautiful Olympic moment. I just want to thank you so much for being so open, sharing your story and your vision for the future, your goals and freeing and changing how we know North Korea today. I highly recommend reading your book, In Order to Live. I found it to be one of the most incredible books I've ever read. You're doing so, so many incredible things. Where can people, you know, you're on Instagram. I think you're also on Twitter. But if you want to let yeah. people know where to find you or follow what you're doing now would be a great time. Yeah, I'm on the all the social media that you can think of. <laughs> I know I talked about the connectiveness, but yep, I'm on Twitter and you know Instagram, Facebook, and I would really appreciate anyone who has you know who wants to join this movement. You really need to fight to free North Koreans or just wanna share their love or anything. I really enjoy that. And that's at Yunmi Park. Is that Y-E-O-N-M-I-P-A-R-K for both Instagram and Twitter? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, both the same. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to catch up more with you at another time. But just thank you. I think this will be such a gift for the audience. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.